Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, verse 3. And so I check the schedule unless the Lord <clears throat> leads it differently. There should be four sermons left in the series on the Holy Spirit. So tonight and then next week, God willing, the Holy Spirit and unity. And then the second to last, uh, for, for the moment I can't remember, and then the last, God willing, will be the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. And then we'll start a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So tonight, the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at Spirit-filled worship from Philippians 3, verse 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come through your Son, Jesus. We come through the Mediator, the only go-between, the one God and one Savior, one Mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is an advocate for us with the Father, Jesus Christ, who lives forever to intercede for us and save to the uttermost. Lord Jesus, all praise and worship belong to you. Father, glory and honor, majesty and thanksgiving belong to you. Holy Spirit, together with the Father and the Son, the, the honor that is due to the Father and the Son we give to you. Triune God, three in one, one in three. We bow before you in reverence and awe and worship you for our God is a consuming fire. We pray that you would speak with us tonight and open our hearts to understand the words of Scripture, your word of truth. Amen. What is spiritual worship? Or spirit-filled worship, as we have it on the board, on the screen. Now, some years ago, a lady said to me that spirit-filled worship is really when you speak in tongues, when you pray in tongues in private, in your quiet time. Because that is spirit to spirit. That is your spirit speaking to God's spirit. And so that is the highest form of worship and of communication. And that is what Jesus meant when he said we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, to be frank with you, and straight with you, that is nonsense. It is not true because Philippians 3 verse 3, the text I'm going to read uh, in a moment, when it says worship God by the Spirit or in the Spirit, that is for every believer. And Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, when he speaks about the gift of tongues, not everyone speaks in tongues. And when Jesus says in John 4, we must worship in spirit and in truth, the Father is seeking such to worship Him, He doesn't mean the Father wants everyone to pray in tongues. He means every believer must worship God in spirit. So what does that look like in practice, to worship God in spirit? Well, let's read the verse. <clears throat> Philippians 3 verse 3. For we, says Paul, are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So, from this verse, I see three descriptions, or practical applications of what 
spirit-filled worship looks like. The first is, it comes from a, or it springs from, or sprouts from a circumcised heart. As Paul says in the beginning of the verse. Now you remember these false teachers who not only came into the Galatian churches, but they came into many churches of, in, in the first century, false teachers called Judaizers, Judaizers. So they were people who confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, and said that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, plus, you must be circumcised if you want to be saved. Plus, you must follow the Jewish dietary laws, kosher laws, food laws. Plus, you must keep the Old Testament feasts. Plus, 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 plus. And so they've come into this church, and they've spread their false teaching, their heresy, saying Jesus alone is not enough, grace alone, faith alone is not enough. And we see in verse 2, Paul warns against them, look out for the dogs, these are the false teachers, look out for the evildoers, look out, out for those who mutilate the flesh. So the apostles said, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 3 verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by the law, with, uh, justified by faith without the keeping of the law, without the works of the law. And in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the circumcision of the flesh, the circumcision of the body in the Old Testament, was really just a shadow, a picture of the circumcision of the heart. So Paul goes on in verse 3, We are the circumcision. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 we see, that was the point all along. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. <coughs> Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then obviously the New Testament as well. Romans 2, for instance, verse 25 to 29. Paul writes, he says, Who's the true Jew? Who's the real Jew? The real Jew is not the one who is a Jew outwardly, Who's the real circumcision? The real circumcision, the snaidness, is not outward. The real circumcision is a circumcision that is inward. Circumcision of the heart. And then also in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter for anything. What matters is keeping the law of God. So you want to say, you want to say, oh, I'm circumcised, all right. Do you keep the whole law? It's not a matter of circumcision or uncircumcision. Paul says it's a matter of faith working through love. Not circumcision, that's anything, or uncircumcision. Are you a new creation? Have you been born again? Galatians 6.15, Galatians 5 verse 6. Can read those verses. And then Colossians also. Colossians 2 verse 11. He speaks of the circumcision not made with hands. It's the circumcision of Christ. It's an inward circumcision. Sin has been cut away. Sin has been removed. So it's those people, it's the people with a circumcised heart that can do the rest of verse 3, who worship by the Spirit of God, he says. So if you don't have a new heart, if you're not a new creature in Christ, if you have not been born again, your worship means nothing. Because you see, your worship, sometimes we as parents or grandparents say, yes, my children, they go to this prosperity church or they go to this church that is really Hebrew roots, but at least they're going to church. No! Or maybe they're going to a good church, but they're not Christians. 
Their worship means nothing. means nothing to the Lord. What God wants is a circumcised heart. Otherwise, we've got a matter of what Jesus said. Jesus quoting Isaiah 29, and it's also in Jeremiah 12 verse 2. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's just lip worship. So your lips are moving and you're singing the songs and you're partaking of the Lord's Supper maybe and you're hearing the scripture readings, you're partaking in prayer, you're listening to the preaching, but you're like a a puppet. You're just saying what needs to be said, but the heart's not in the matter and it's useless. So you're saying all the right words, you're listening to the sermon, but where are your thoughts? Your thoughts in the shop, to go shopping oh i need to buy that thing i've got this money now that i've saved up and i'm so excited and you're missing half of the worship service well your thoughts are on the sports field your thoughts are in the study your thoughts are with your studies your schoolwork your thoughts are at the office tomorrow in that meeting you've got that you're dreading or your thoughts maybe are with your friends or it's around the bride making a fire and enjoying a party that's that you might have you at the Vol River. <laughs> Don't hope so. I know Rian serves the Lord truly. But your thoughts may be elsewhere. It's not with the Lord. So unless, <clears throat> unless you have a new heart, the worship's going to mean little. Unless the heart is circumcised, it's not worshiping in the Spirit. It's not Spirit-filled worship. And unless you have a new heart and you keep on coming to worship, What's going to happen is you, you, you'll want to change the worship. You'll want to adapt the worship to suit your passions, to suit your desires. And that won't honor God. And then, then you're going to look for a church or you're going to stand up in some meeting and start complaining. Saying, no, what I want now is I want a, I don't, I want a church, I want a worship service that suits my, my passions, that can be adapted to me. So please don't make it too long because you're messing up my whole Sunday. Because we got family coming over or this or that or the other thing. We got sport or whatever it may be. Or you just start staying away. You start neglecting public worship. You don't gather with believers. Why? Because it's really it's interfering with, with, with what you really want to do. What your real desires are. And that's not to worship God. And so you are quenching the Holy Spirit like a flame. The Holy Spirit, it's a, like a fire. Um, as Chris preached this morning. Fanning into flame the gift that is in you. That which the Spirit has given. And now the Spirit is driving you to worship the Father through the Son. He's moving, but you're quenching the Spirit. If you do that kind of thing that I just explained. Now there are unbelievers, obviously, who don't care for a long worship service. They won't mind if the worship service goes on for three hours. Or for an hour and 45. They, as long as it, it pampers the flesh. As long as it panders to the flesh. The sinful nature, the sin, sinful desire. So they want a worship service. can go on for three hours, but please give me promises of health, wealth, and prosperity. Give me promises of lots of money and of healing. And just get the atmosphere right. We want to come into the mood. And if we could put all the lights off and put some kind of ultra-fluorescent light, you would glow. Because the mood is right. So get me in the mood. Give me a feel-good sermon. Good music and some humor too, that'll help. But you see what happens if you've got man-driven and man-centered worship, that is a sign of an uncircumcised heart. 
The heart is not changed. The heart is not new. Because the circumcised heart worships God with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. The, the, the circumcised heart doesn't come into a church and say, What you got for the kids? Have you got a children's service? Have you got a youth service? So we now have to adapt according to the children's preferences or according to the mom's preferences or the dad's preferences. What kind of music? How's the parking? And whatever people want out of church. No, the circumcised heart doesn't ask, how can we pander to the flesh? The circumcised heart asks, what is pleasing to God? The circumcised heart asks, what does God's word say? And we want to worship in that way. So we want to worship in spirit and in truth, as Chris read and as we sang from John 4, 23 and 24. Worship in spirit and truth. Where do we find the truth? We find truth in Scripture. So God tells us here, this is how we ought to worship and what we should do. And it doesn't matter if you're sincere. If you're sincere, but you're not worshiping according to truth, that is unacceptable to God. Because then you are Nadab and Abihu, waltzing into the tabernacle and doing things the way they want. Bringing unauthorized fire and God strikes them dead. Or Uzzah, where they put the ark in an ox cart and when it tilted, Uzzah put out his hand to try and stop the ark from falling into the mud or the dust, the ground, and God struck him dead. Why? Because God told the Levites, you never put the ark on a cart. You carry it on the shoulders. And they disobeyed God and thought they can do it in their own way. You try and worship God in a way that pleases you. It's not pleasing to the Lord. They worship me in vain, says the Lord, Matthew 59, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, saying this is how we worship, but they're making up their own stuff putting up a crucifix with a, some kind of statue of Jesus, walking into the church, put a little bowl of holy water, dip your fingers in, make a sign of a cross, bow before the crucifix. It's man-centered worship. Where did God tell us to do that? Nowhere. Well, they got a little skit before the service starts. We're going to have a little concert to Nielke. To say, this is how we... Where did God command us to do that? Ever in the New Testament. Or the Old. Or they light candles and say, this brings us into the atmosphere. Or you've got now painting in the spirit. So now we've got the worship service. So someone who's arty comes here and does a 30-second paint, a picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns and say, I did this in the spirit. God didn't command us to do that. Or wave a flag to, I know where people find these things. Or contemplate, contemplative praying. So we all have to sit and just empty the mind. It's more Buddhism than Christianity really empty the mind or and say a so-called holy word mary 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 or peace 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 or you just keep on lip-syncing and saying this thing until you come into an atmosphere of peace or you got a fire tunnel where everyone has to pass through and now everyone who's passed through that now you're apostles or now you uh, got the gift of prophecy or, or they got a, a labyrinth uh, like a maze a dual or um, and so now you have to walk through this maze and repeat certain prayers and that will bring you closer to God. 
This is an emergent kind of worship. Or blow a shofar. And when you blow the shofar, it breaks something in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. And you're fighting demons that way. Or anointing people's feet with olive oil. That comes from last rites in Roman Catholicism. Um, or everyone speaking in tongues at the same time without interpretation. And all kinds of stuff. And then obviously you'll find unbelievers, so their hearts are not circumcised, you'll find unbelievers who do worship according to the book. There are churches, they worship according to God's book, the Bible, but their hearts are not circumcised. So you get unbelievers doing this, and in the week, they're living like the devil, and on Sunday they're singing God's praises. It's like the woman in Proverbs 7, the adulterous woman. She's sexually immoral, and then she comforts the man, don't worry, I brought my sacrifices. Come to my house, it's fine, my husband's not home. And think that worship is acceptable in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 12. Who demanded of you this trampling of my courts? You come, you bring all these sacrifices to me, you lift your hands in prayer, and you call out to me and you think I'm going to answer that prayer. You even cry, I'm not going to answer those prayers because your hand are, hands are covered in blood. You murder in the weak, or you oppress widows and orphans, or you don't give justice where justice is due, and now you want to worship me. I will not accept that. Or in James 3, from the same mouth, my brothers, there comes cursing and, and singing God's praises, or cursing and blessing. This ought not to be. It ought not to be. Or fighting with your wife in the car on the way to a Sunday worship service, or with your husband. And you bickering, and you're arguing, and you've got words with one another, and you think your worship is acceptable to God. First Timothy 2 verse 8, it tells us, let the men in every place lift up holy hands. I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without quarreling and without anger. Holy hands. Or maybe being sexually immoral and then coming for worship. Or in Isaiah 58, you're crying, you're fasting. Why is the Lord not hearing? We delight in fasting. We delight in praying. Isaiah 58, and you ask, why does the Lord not hear? This is why the Lord does not hear, he says. The reason the Lord does not hear is because you hit with a wicked fist. On Monday you're beating your workers, you're swearing at them, and on just the day before you came worshipping the Lord. It's unacceptable to the Lord. God wants, verse 3, circumcision. Circumcised heart, a changed heart. That's true circumcision, not verse 2, mutilation of the body. Alright, next, second description of what spiritual worship is or spirit-filled worship it is spiritual more than external so it's it's not outward it's really it's inward it's inward worship so let's start with singing singing for instance don't confuse the word worship with singing singing is part of worship but that's not all of worship Sometimes you hear people singing about this is a praise song and this is a worship song. The Bible never makes that distinction. Saying, oh, this is more worship. Is it true? If the song is slower, then it's worship. It's, if it's faster, then it's praise. <laughs> That's not true. Or you hear people saying, oh, we're going to have a night just of praise and worship tonight. And they mean there's going to be no sermon. But they confuse singing with worship. Don't call it praise and worship just because it's singing. The sermon is also worship. Martin Luther said the preaching is the highest form of worship because it's God speaking to us. 
and praying is worship and partaking of the Lord's Supper is worship and fellowship and baptism. All we do when we gather, actually all of life, all of life is worship. With, as a Christian, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Now we're talking tonight about corporate worship. Worship together as the church of Jesus Christ. So when we gather as a church, we worship in, first of all, the gathering. We together as believers. The preaching of God's word. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. When we pray together, we had a prayer meeting before the service started. That was worship. We pray the Bible. We read the scriptures. Until I come, Timothy, continue in public reading of scriptures, exhortation, and teaching. It's part of worship, the reading of the scriptures. So what Quirst did earlier wasn't unimportant. Quirst read for us from John 4. That's important. We're reading God's word together. And then baptism, that's worship. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, that's worship. We see the gospel depicted. The blood of Christ shed. The body of Christ broken. Baptism. We see a picture of Christ's burial and resurrection from the dead. And cleansing through His blood as <clears throat> water symbolizes for us. It washes, it cleanses. If you have a wrong definition of worship and you limit it to singing, then you're going to in, in this way, you're going to land in a church somewhere because your definition is wrong, where you love it because we sing for an hour and 45 minutes and the sermon's only 15 minutes because people cannot concentrate that long. <laughs> so give us a 15-minute sermonette for Christianette. And listen, we need more singing. We need to sing for an hour and 30 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes because the singing moves the affections, the, the affections, the emotions. And the sermon, and that's just intellectual. It just does something in the brain. It <laughs> doesn't really move the heart. That is a wrong understanding of what worship is. That's a wrong understanding of how truth and emotions and even singing work together. So how does it work? This is the way it works. The emotions are affected and should be affected by truth. If your emotions are merely affected by the crying of the violin, or the melody of the piano, or the fullness of different musical instruments, or the volume of the singing, if your emotions are merely affected by that, and you start tearing up, that is not biblical worship. That is not worshipping in spirit and in truth. You can get that at Wembley Stadium or F&B Stadium or Loftusfersfeld. You can also just everyone singing the national anthem. You start tearing up. This has really moved me. That's not worship. At least not of the true God. <laughs> Augustine, <coughs> one of the church fathers in the 4th century said, When it happens to me that I am more moved by the singing than by what is sung, I confess myself to have sinned criminally. I would rather not have heard the singing. You see, true worship starts with a circumcised heart, a new heart, a transformed heart that understands God's truth. You understand God's truth 
And that understanding of the truth from a new heart moves the will and moves the emotions, moves the affections. It affects you. You get that in Psalm 100 where the psalmist tells us how to worship. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Where did all of that joy start? Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are the people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Where did that start? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. So you see, emotions have to be moved by truth and spirit. The Holy Spirit applying the truth to our hearts. And then it just bubbles over in joy and thanksgiving or in mourning for our sins and being sorry for our sin or whatever it may be or move to obedience. In Nehemiah, you have the same, chapter 8 and 9. So Ezra stands up, he reads the law, and then he explains it to the people. And people are so moved by this. They are so sorry for their sin. They see where they have sinned against God. And then he says, stop crying now. Stop weeping. Stop mourning. Go home and rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then they have family worship. And the leaders of all the families gather and they learn more of the word. And in chapter 9, there's another reading of the law. And then there's a prayer of contrition and confession for their sins. Where did that start? An understanding of truth. And that understanding cannot happen until the heart has been circumcised. Until there's a new heart. You've been born again. You've been born of God. I remember a lady in our church. Some of you remember her, Tani Bessie. She's in heaven now. Perfect worship. <laughs> but Tani Bessie, I remember once, I preached a, a sermon on Romans 8, verse 31 to 39, that marvelous ending of Romans 8. <clears throat> All the questions Paul asked, who can separate us from the love of God? You remember that? And after the sermon, she was so gripped by it, we sang in Christ alone. And we sang, No power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And when she greeted me as she went out, she said, you know, that is very true. No power of hell or scheme of man can ever take me away from God. Truth informed her, her regenerated, her renewed heart and mind, and that moved the emotions as she sang in response to the truth. <clears throat> so it's through the truth that the Holy Spirit moves your spirit and my spirit to worship God. Worship in spirit and truth. Truth moves by the spirit. Ephesians 5, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what will, what will the result of that be? The next verse. You will give thanks you will instruct one another in all wisdom, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Where did it start?
filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With all wisdom, instructing and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it starts with truth. It starts not only with told truth, just reading and thinking it's going to move. The heart is to be changed first and the Spirit does that and then the Spirit moves. Working truth into the mind and the heart and then the emotions come. Whether it's sorrow for sin or joy in the Lord. So you see, you see, true worship is spiritual. More than outward, more than external. Look at verse 3 again in Philippians 3. <clears throat> For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Now it's possible to translate that. I've got a little footnote here that says it's also possible to translate who worship God in spirit. Now John 4 tells us that anyway, worship in spirit. That might mean you saw it's with a small s, right? Uh, in, in the hymn we sung. So that means your spirit. But here it's capital S saying it's the Holy Spirit moving my spirit through the truth in this new heart of mine to worship the Lord. It's inward. So outward elements of worship, is that important? Well, it can help. So we're in a church building right now. Is this necessary for us to worship in? Right. Don't have to. Can you be under a mango tree? Oh, yes. Why? Because worship is inward. It's not outward. But the building helps so we don't get rained on. <laughs> or the sun doesn't beat down on your head in the morning service in the summer. Or the wind doesn't blow dust in your eyes. So it's helpful. So if it serves the worship, wonderful. What about a piano? Can that help? In worship, yes. And give us the tune. We can stay on tune. And we can sing and make melody to the Lord. But it's not a necessity. It's not if we don't have that, then we cannot worship in spirit and truth. We can worship under a mango tree without a musical instrument of any sort. And have the Bible and read it and preach it. And that's true worship. Because worship is inward more than outward. It's in spirit. Jesus told us. That's the point Jesus was making. We didn't read the whole passage, but the point was Jesus was sitting at this well. You remember the context, the story of the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, and she gets into a discussion with Jesus. And just to cut to the, the chase, to get to the point, <clears throat> so the discussion goes to worship because that's her real problem. She's sexually immoral and it's a worship problem because she's worshiping herself or her own comfort or feeling wanted or whatever sensual passions and so jesus talks about worship and says she says where must we worship you're a prophet must we worship where the samaritans say at mount gerizim or must we worship in jerusalem at the temple and jesus says neither true worship is not limited to a place we're not muslims we have to face a certain direction where we pray when we pray so true worship is well god is spirit so he's everywhere he's the He's the omnipresent spirit. So wherever God is and His people are, and His spirit works upon their hearts, that's real worship. Worship Him in spirit and truth according to His word. <clears throat> so let us not forget that true worship, spiritual worship, doesn't come from a lifeless guitar, a lifeless violin, 
a lifeless drum, a lifeless piano. Because that's just an instrument. You could have played Happy Birthday to me <laughs> on there. And that's not worship. It's just a lifeless instrument. The true worship comes from the heart. It comes from a regenerated heart, a changed heart, a new heart, filled with the Spirit and the Word. That's real worship. So yes, we, pray, we, we worship God with instruments. Psalm 150. All the instruments in the psalm. We worship Him with instruments. But remember, it's not the instruments doing the worship. It's us. So that means... Some of you have had this experience. That means that if you attend a worship service where the music just drowns out the congregation's voices, it's so loud. That should never happen. Because what is the main instrument when we worship God in song? What is the main instrument? It's the heart of God's people. It's the congregation singing together from a renewed heart. Filled with the Word and the Spirit. It's not a guitar, it's not a piano, it's not any other instrument. And some people forget this, and then they attend our worship service, as I was told not long ago, your worship is dead. Well, first of all, the person hasn't got a right definition of worship, because he thinks only singing is worship. And secondly, you call worship dead, because the music is not loud enough, or people aren't clapping their hands together, or... Maybe you say there's no smoke and there are no colored lights, so your worship is dead. <clears throat> You've got a wrong definition of worship if you think that. That kind of person, the person who says that, you just give them the right atmosphere, they will sing ecstatically. So my question is, what has moved them? Was it the Word and the Spirit, or was it the music? And besides that, we want to ask, what does your life look like during the week? Because you see, if my life during the week is not honoring to God, and I'm not seeking holy obedience, submission to God's Word, I don't care what you do on Sunday, even if it's perfect. It's not worship. Not spiritual worship, at least. Because Paul tells us, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of life, not just Sunday. Last, lastly, number three. Third description of spirit-filled worship is, it is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. You see, man-centered worship focuses on and brags about and boasts about everything outward, everything external. That's what Paul did before he got saved. He says at the end of verse 3, We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuted of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So I can brag in a lot of stuff, says Paul, all these outward things, and that's what people do if they have uncircumcised hearts. It's all about externals. 
That's what people do if it's all outward worship. But there's no spiritual worship. The heart hasn't changed. Then you've got the things where I am a founding member of this church. My forefathers have been, we've been members of this church for five generations. We've been Baptists. I can trace my lineage back to the first Baptist wherever you think they started. But what your theory is, my parents built this church. We got 3,000 worshippers on a Sunday or 300 or whatever. Numbers and figures you want to boast in. Got a budget of 12 million rand a year. See our money in our church bank account. More than you earn a month. <laughs> Professional musicians in our church. They train. Our pastor has three PhDs. Not even talking about the elders. And those men are learned men. They're scholars. And you start boasting and bragging. About all the outward stuff. Why? Because there's nothing inside. It's like bragging about your sandcastle because you haven't seen the mansion. Bragging about all these outward stuff because you haven't seen the glory of Christ. That's why you've got really nothing to boast about. Spirit-filled worship boasts in Christ. Brags about Christ. Glories in Christ. Verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. With no confidence in the flesh. Spirit-filled worship does verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Give me more of Christ. And to see His beauty, His majesty, His glory. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said when He comes, the Spirit of truth, He will glorify me. So if it's really spiritual worship, don't give me all your talk about whatever you want to talk about. About all your numbers and figures and money and people coming and whatever. And that's why in this church we seek to say with the Apostle Paul, I've decided to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and crucified. That's why we want our preaching to be Christ-centered. And not give me a sermon, I don't care how well you have expounded and explained the text. Don't give me a sermon you could have preached in a synagogue and they won't be offended. Give me Christ-centered preaching. Where the Lord Jesus is lifted up. That's why we partake of the Lord's Supper twice a month and not three times a year. Because we want to focus on verse 3, glory in Christ. <coughs> That's why <coughs> in our singing, we want Jesus to be lifted up. Jesus to be magnified. And please, don't give us the Old Testament shadow in our worship. We want the New Testament fullness. Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, 
the fullness or the substance belongs to Christ. So what that means practically is we do not celebrate the Old Testament feasts. This is creeping into churches. Want to go back to some Hebrew roots. If you want to do that just for interest sake, I wonder how they did the Passover. Fine. But if you're doing that for spiritual reasons, no. We celebrate the new feast. We celebrate Christ who is the fullness. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't burn incense in our churches. We pray because incense in the Old Testament was a shadow of prayer. Psalm 141 even tells us that. And Revelation 5, the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people. We don't confess our sins at a confessional booth to a priest because all God's people are priests. And we all bring spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Even in Protestant churches or Baptist churches, we do not put the pastor on a pedestal. Every believer is a priest. We don't go back to the shadows. We've got the fullness. We've got Christ. We don't rest on the seventh day, which is a picture of resting of the old creation. There's a new creation that Christ has brought through His resurrection. And if someone is in Christ, He's a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. So we, we come together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, to worship. Not the shadows. We preach you must be born again. We preach the new birth. We preach repentance and faith in Christ. We do not preach moralism. Saying do this, don't do that, keep these rules. We do not preach the Old Testament law. Yes, we obey God's law, but that is by the power of the Spirit. But we don't preach salvation by law keeping. And then when we sing the Psalms, and we do... And we don't sing about sacrifices, animal sacrifices. We sing about the fullness and the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit changes worship from a duty to a pleasure. From a duty to a delight. From a duty to a privilege. The Holy Spirit changes worship from an ordinary worship service to people saying God is in that place not meaning the building the Holy Spirit changes an ordinary worship service into people falling on their face and saying truly God is among you changing an ordinary worship service into the Lord is in His holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before Him. And we are that temple of the Lord, dwelling place for God's Spirit. He changes this worship service quite ordinary into a place where we see with the eyes of faith the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, where we honor the Son as we honor the where we honor the Spirit of God in a place where we come and we fall before Christ saying, My Lord and my God. Can I close with this illustration? It happened in 1727 in Germany. 
in Hernut, where some Christians came, Moravian Christians, they were followers of John Huss, who was a martyr about a hundred years before Martin Luther. And John Huss was burnt at the stake, was killed for his faith, because he believed we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And these people who believed that message in the 1700s, this is a couple of hundred years later, they had to flee from modern-day Czech Republic in the East, Moravia. And they fled to Germany and they found asylum at the house of a very important German man called Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And when they got to Nicholas von Zinzendorf's property, there was already a Lutheran church there, a Lutheran chapel, and they worshipped. And there was division, because these Lutherans had their formal order of worship, and these Moravians had a more simple form of worship, probably closer to the New Testament. And there was a bit of strife, and Nicholas said, no, we cannot have this strife and this fighting and division. We are Christians. There should be unity. And so the Moravians were allowed to go on in their little community, but they asked, please join us for worship on Sundays. And they did. And when the unity came, one Sunday, Nicholas von Zinzendorf stood and he prayed a public prayer, but he was calling to the Lord. And when he, he was crying as he was pleading to the Lord. And suddenly the Spirit of God came down and a revival broke out and people wanted to hear more of the Word. And they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And they started singing hymns morning, afternoon, and evening. And they praised the Lord and there were tears of repentance and contrition. And a very wicked man got saved. He repented of his sin. And children started being converted and repenting of their sins. And they came to salvation in Christ. And everywhere, wherever you came from the town to Zinzendorf's house, you would see people everywhere talking in groups of two or three, asking forgiveness for one another for the strife they had caused and for division and fighting and things they had done and crying and embracing one another. And there was a restoration as the Spirit of the Lord came in that revival. A deep hunger for the Word was ignited and sparked in the hearts of the people. And they said, we want three worship services a day. They worshipped the Lord, gathered together, and they lived holy lives. And they started sharing their possessions and sharing with those who do not have, with the poor. And the Spirit of God shed into their hearts the love of God. They were so filled with the love of God. And they started praying together and they said, Who of you want to pray with us? There's a burden for prayer. And some of you know this. They started praying, Who will take this slot, this slot, this slot? 24 people volunteered and they prayed 24 hours round the clock. Seven days a week, and it started going on, and more started volunteering. Even children who were converted saying, I want to take a slot. They prayed non-stop, 24 hours a day. Who wants to guess for how long? A hundred years. They sent out 226 missionaries in 29 years. Such a burden for the loss. And they came to South Africa. First missionaries in the Western Cape, Hanardendal. I've told you about this. May the Lord visit us as we seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth.
And Lord, would you not descend upon your people again? Would you not come to us again, O God? Would you not give us a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit? Would you not move our souls to worship you in spirit and in truth? Not only this little congregation. Who are we, Lord? We are but dust. Visit all your people, O God. And even those unbelievers in the midst of their sin, bring them under tremendous conviction of their lostness, of their hopelessness without Christ. Please would you save, O oh God. We ask you, visit your people again. In Jesus' name, Amen.